I go to the corner to celebrate and tear my shirt off and use the corner flag as a spear. And I'm just staring into the abyss. What is up, guys, and welcome back to the Touchline Theory Soccer Podcast. I'm Will Algren. I'm here with the other host, Martin Grossman. How's it going, Martin? What's up, guys? Other host here. Not, not too bad, bro. I'm doing just fine. It's very hot here now on the East Coast. Um, I have no air conditioning in my new apartment. So despite the pleasures of the move and officially being uh, indoctrinated as a grade A now um i am very warm and very sweaty in this room i have no furniture um except for my new decoration on my microphone that hopefully will make the audio sound just a tad bit better so um things are good what about you that's good um i'm i'm glad you used your curse up on that something that will lose all its meaning once i censor it and no one will understand <laughs> what you said it's, it's not a curse word it is. it's just it's a term of endearment okay um yeah <laughs> Martin promised he wasn't going to curse today, but that stupid <laughs> couldn't keep his promise. So. <laughs> promise broken. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm doing all right. Uh, like you said, it's been very hot, very hot here as well. I've actually had the last two soccer practices of mine canceled for heat concerns. So it's been a bit of a slow week for me, but uh, generally doing okay. Is that because their coach is the world's hottest teen? I'm not going to dignify that with the respect. <laughs> Looks um, like the uh, heat stroke is settling in here on a cognitive level for me. So we'll look to push through that today as we uh, discuss our topic du jour. Um, something that I think is quite relevant for right now, but I don't know. Why don't you introduce us to our general idea for today's episode, Will? Yeah, well, the season's starting back up. I think all of the leagues now pretty much have got going again. And uh, the big topic of conversation that I've seen in the media is that the fans are back. You know, we're, we're back to normal in a lot of ways. And, you know, I'm watching these games. It looks like it did a couple of years ago, full stadiums and uh, everything. So this has kind of just got me thinking about fans in general and... I don't know, kind of their role in soccer and, you know, their role in home field advantage, which is kind of a very well-established concept, one that's so well-established, I honestly feel kind of stupid even trying to, like, explain what it is. But it's just the idea that teams will do better at home. You know, teams, when they have their own fans in their home stadium, will win more games. And, you know, this isn't just a soccer thing either. If you're trying to start a war or something, the same concept applies. It's an interdisciplinary thing. Um, but it's, it's kind of changed in the past year because, you know, there's all sorts of reasons you could look at for home field advantage, you know, geography, just being used to your surroundings, having the fans, but, you know, one of those things, having the fans there, uh, got taken away for like the past year and a half or so. And it was very different. I don't know. There was kind of a slew of different reactions across the football world to when that happened. And there's been a lot of different reactions now that's coming back. So I'll just start by asking Martin, like how, how do you feel generally about the fans being back for these games now? So what's complicated as an American fan that 
pretty much exclusively watches European soccer is that I have rarely ever actually genuinely had the experience of being a fan, right? So I think that my answer to that question is going to be a little bit different than somebody, say, who is in an environment in which they regularly attend games for which that experience is more visceral. Um, I think as our as is the case for a lot of things of this nature, I think it's just the thing to say right now, you know, that everybody is talking about, oh, you know, you hear the ball hit the back of the net, you hear the crowd roar. It's just so much more euphoric. Um, and I, I think in large part, I agree with that. I think that there, the added emotion adds a different sort of parallel storyline to the match. Um, and it gives it a little bit more significance, a little bit, it makes it less sterile. I know we had an episode recently where we talked about um, just generally like some people feel as though the magic has maybe dissipated in this game a little bit over the past whatever time frame. I think that the lack of fans certainly exacerbated a lot of people's feelings of maybe loneliness when watching the games during lockdown and this idea that things were just bleak and it was just a reminder you know, a, a, the, the juxtaposition of having such a massive space full of seats for people to take up and having no one in them, I think was just a painful reminder of things over the course of the last 18 months. But I think that what a lot of people have also looked into, I think, like you mentioned, like home field advantage is something that everybody somewhat takes for granted and has always, I think, assumed. And certainly there's been studies that have more empirically backed up the value of playing within the comfort of your own home and things of that nature. But I think recently there's also been a little bit of a um, like a, a rise in people who have also questioned whether or not it's necessarily a good thing. And I say this as someone, once again, who like does not attend these matches on a regular basis in person and does not spend my entire Saturday, you know, making choripans in a parking lot and like getting drunk with my friends and, 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 you know, doing the whole tailgating process and marching to the, to the stadium. Like I, I don't have that where I live originally. And I also don't have the European fanfare, the South American fanfare in the United States. It's just different. And so I, I, that's, that's an important disclaimer, but I do yeah. think that it's been interesting to see the, you, you know, the return and to be able to compare that side by side, right? Because so much conversation was held about this exact topic a year ago. We're, we're coming at this a little bit late in that sense where it's like this was the thing to talk about when it all, when soccer was starting back up and there was no one there to watch it. But I think now we're at a very interesting point that maybe makes the conversation even more in, like intriguing because now we've seen a bit of like the full picture and we have more information, more recent experiences to base our thoughts off of. And, you know, there have been some recent events that have made people question whether the fans can are a positive influence. There have been a lot of additional factors that people have considered that fans might, believe it or not, maybe humanity doesn't necessarily have a wholly positive impact on the rest of humanity. You know, you're, there's ways in which... No there's way. way. There's ways in which people can be problematic um so i suppose we're kind of gonna discuss that but what's your take i don't know it's a good question how do you feel about the return of fans to the stadiums i i was kind of disappointed by my own response to this because I'll, I'll tell you the you know the commentator in the first game i watched the season said isn't it great to have this crowd noise and not have to listen to the empty stadium and i was like eh, i don't know i i really liked the empty stadium i don't know if this is just like a solipsistic view of the world but I, I don't care about all the other people there like i i enjoyed being able to hear the players i 
enjoyed the vibe it gave. And I don't know. I mean, I know there's thousands and thousands of people who are happy they can go back and attend these games anymore. But uh, it's just, to me, I don't know. It's, if I'm being completely honest, like the, the fans are, are not really something I watch the games for. It's not what draws me to the club. It's not something I'm really looking for in the match day experience, I guess. You know, and that's, again, like you said, that's coming from a soulless American who watches all the games on TV and, and never gets the chance to go to the stadium much. But if I'm being honest, it's, it's, it's a bit strange. I see, I see all these people uh, talking about how wonderful having the fans back is and a quote from Klopp saying that football is a nice game without you, but with you is the best game in the world and all this emotion. I just, uh, maybe I just don't get it, but I feel, I feel a little left out. I'm not as caught up in all this as everyone else is, I guess. I think that it's important to contextualize things by mentioning, obviously, as everyone painfully is way too well aware of, that like the world has fallen on hard times and things like that are nice to say in the media, especially when if you don't talk about that, they're going to ask you who's going to fill Shakiri's place after his move to Leon. You know, like uh, these Harvey, are things that Harvey Elliott. Yeah, it's we talked about great. this, but yeah. but I think that you know, like th this, this is what I'm talking about. Every single podcast I've listened to has talked about how much better the games have been with the fans. Every you know, commentator, like you've mentioned, every article has talked about just like how much more, you know, revitalizing it's been to have them. And and I don't necessarily question that. I just think that there are additional, what I will call subcutaneous factors um, that, that are subcutaneous is like beneath the skin. I don't know. I've always wanted to use that in a touchline theory piece. Well, there you go. Now you so have here it. I am. Yeah. <laughs> subcutaneous you get what i'm saying like beneath the surface just some nuances that can just impact the players right because at the end of the day what we are watching like you mentioned the spectacle we can get into this but the spectacle at the end of the day is what happens on the field and what happens in the stands is less of it though the stands do provide a certain ambiance and they do create this pressure filled cauldron in which these athletes not only are forced to perform as the best physical specimen and the best uh, cognitive, you know, strategic, technical specimen of this given discipline in the world, but also those that are best able to withstand the pressure. The, the pressure yeah. is a massive part of this, right? That if you're playing in an empty stadium, yeah, you could theoretically visualize the millions of people that are watching the game from the comfort of their own home, but when someone's cursing your mother from meters away, you might just do something a little bit differently. Yeah. And it, it's interesting kind of that, you know, it's, it's very different. The kind of pressure you would experience in an empty stadium, being able to hear every individual thing that gets said versus the pressure of just like a complete wall of noise that you would have with the fans back. And, you know, it's, it's hard to judge on that pressure too. Cause like I've, I've been in huge stadiums. I've been a part of big crowds, but I've, I've never had a thousand people watch me do anything in my life, let alone, you know, 50, 60,000 or whatever it is in these stadiums. I mean, it's almost incomprehensible. And I don't know if the players just are adapted to that or they just tune it out at this point. And it's you know, like, there's just a hundred people there, but it's, I mean, the numbers are insane. I think that at a certain point, it's probably like the type of thing where, you only, you know, the corny thing to say when it's like, you know, you only know what you have when it's gone or whatever the, the precise saying is. But the idea is basically like, I would totally assume that these guys that grow up, or these men and women 
playing under such pressure, you get used to it. It doesn't become so much of a factor anymore. But the second it goes, suddenly it's the lack of something beating in the background that can synchronize with the beat of your heart when you're nervous and drive you forward in a way that's hard to describe. I think that suddenly there's probably a rise of hyper awareness, you know, like sometimes when I'm driving in a densely packed city, there are some people that need to turn down the volume of the music so that they can like focus because it's too much multitasking when the volume is too loud and they have to do something physical. For me, sometimes I prefer to have the volume up because it gets me kind of in the zone in a state of flow and I'm doing things without overthinking them. I'm not necessarily, you know, trying to shift gears and over considering, you know, how to downshift, all these different things. Like I just do it. And yeah. maybe there's a certain element to that in sport. I think there is where it's, uh, a lot it's, of it's players- familiarity, right? It's, it's whatever you're comfortable with. And, you know, when you have just everything looks the same, you're in the same stadium, you're playing the same team, same time, but there's just that one thing missing. Then yeah, you're, you're going to feel on edge. You're gonna feel like oh, this, this is almost right, but eh. I mean, and, and I, I emphasize, I think the, the key there is this idea that when you're in the moment, you don't over contemplate, you don't, you know, exaggerate the specific physical motions that you are, that ne you need to execute something. It just kind of happens, but you need that moment to be in the moment. And without this ambiance, I feel as though it can be difficult because if you imagine the scrimmage that you have with your players at the end of practice, Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's a, little, it's a little more competitive than that. But at the end of the day, these players that are playing these massive stadiums by themselves, it's got to feel like, where are the stakes? You know, what is what are we what are we doing this for again? Like, are, are is what we're doing? Is there any real significance here? And so I think all that questioning and like, you know, you receive a ball and your entire fan base is chanting your name. You're just going to pull something off. That's ridiculous. If you receive a ball and no one's there. You might just be like, oh, I just received the ball. Now there's there's nothing to distract you from the weight of the moment. Yeah, but you know, on, on the same thing that that uh, support from fans is not only a positive thing. You know, as we alluded to, or as you alluded to earlier, you know, uh, a lot of players, you know, might get boosted by that support from their fans. But for a lot of players, you know, that that might be pressure that they're not able to handle and that hurts. And, you know, maybe playing in an empty stadium is a much better fit for them. And, you know, I, I think we've seen some of that over the past year, kind of, um, you know, regardless of whether it's a positive or a negative change, it, is, it has definitely been a significant change for all the players to have to deal with playing in these empty stadiums now. I mean, I think that there was maybe some conversation. I'm not so tuned into the, uh, London club dynamics between one another. But I think some people were talking about how like there were, there were opinions last year that West Ham did so well because their fans weren't there. I, I have a lot to say on that actually. Well, um, and <laughs> it's this idea yeah. that like for some fan bases have high expectations and maybe rightfully so a club that is in London again, I don't know if it was West Ham or someone else. So don't quote me on that, but like, let's say it was a lot of fan bases Again, especially if you're in a big city and there's rivalries and there's historical implications and maybe right now recently in the last 10 20 years you haven't done so well there there is a lot of pride that comes with wearing the your your team's branded items we had a whole episode on rebranding and how much of a personal insult so many people took to that and i think that for a lot of teams there there becomes a situation where maybe those players who have inherited a lot of that pressure who 
a lot, you know, we talked about how a lot of these teams now are pulling in imports from all over the places. There's lots of teams. Yeah. I mean, the Champions League groups were drawn today, and in Group A, we've got City <laughs> and PSG. And, and, and Leipzig. And, and well. Leipzig. Yeah. For those that are, you know, in this camp, that's like a just a group of mercenaries. It's just the, all these imports. Like, yeah, you know, Club, Club Bruges are going to be the most loved team in Europe for the next three three months or however long the group stage is. Everyone's exactly. going to be pulling for them every single match. So. And you and so you have to kind of consider the fact that a lot of those players came to places that they had expectations that had nothing to do with them, but suddenly they assumed those additional responsibilities. Now, without fans in the stadium to boo you because they expect better based on some criteria you were never really a part of generating, maybe now you have the freedom to actually play well. I mean, and I think we definitely have seen that. I, I don't think it's only like, you know, I don't think it's only West Ham. Mm -hmm. I think that there have been some well, clubs who have probably had some of the cracks in their teams covered up over the past year by having no one there. And now that fans are back, it's maybe being exposed too. Uh, I, I think it's possible, but I will say that, you know, just because the fans aren't in the stadium doesn't mean uh, players are immune from that kind of criticism at all. You know, it's social media, you know, you're, you're still hearing a lot of that noise, even if it's not during the matches. Right. Yeah. But it's less, I think yeah, like someone, someone, like, someone like Timo Werner, like didn't, didn't go last season, like feeling like he was not criticized by anyone. Right. I know it was probably better than it would have been otherwise, but you, you still get that narrative. Sure, but you could probably picture a scenario in which I don't know if Chelsea, the Chelsea fan base is like this, but if you're in Spain at certain okay. clubs, let's say, he might have come on the field halfway through the season and been whistled. And that yeah. could have been the type of thing that, you know, is the straw yeah. that breaks the camel's back. And, and those are the things that historically have been limiting factors for some players. We talked, I don't know, what was it, the last episode, a couple episodes ago, about like all these players that have failed to meet expectations to emulate their predecessors. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those players have fallen short because of those expectations, but also because of the reception in the stadiums, you know, like when you're in the stadium, there is both positive reinforcement and negative punishment in some environments. It's pressure. It's not just motivation, right? Yeah. So, and I will say, um, you know, even for Werner, as soon as fans were allowed back in, I'm pretty sure like the first day of training, some woman did come up and give him some abuse. So there you go. Didn't end up mattering that much either way. Um, for good measure. Yeah. But okay. Where, where do you want to, where do you want to start? So we've kind of given a little bit of a high level, uh, background as to why we're talking about this now today. I, I feel like we've already, I feel like we've <laughs> already started Martin. Um, well, Okay. Um, I don't know. Do you have any sort of numbers? I know we talked a little bit about maybe some stats that back up yeah. certain so misconceptions. I, I do want to talk about. So, you know, I, like I said, home field advantage is just like, uh, it's, it's an existing concept. You know, everyone knows what it is. Everyone agrees with it. And the stats back it up, you know, more or less you look at any team in any season ever, and they will do better at home than they do away. You know, there'll be a few exceptions, you know, outliers, a team will do this a year here, a year there, they'll play better away, but never consistently. And, you know, it's just, it's what you expect to see. And so when the fans were taken away last year, I would have guessed that would have, would have happened has just been a lessening of this advantage, right? That home teams would still do better because they still have the other advantages of staying at home and not having to travel and knowing the stadium but it wouldn't be as much of an effect because of the fans. And in a lot of the leagues, that's what happened, and most of them actually. But 
in a couple leagues, uh, some really weird stuff started happening when you took the fans away. And uh, this is uh, the ones I looked at for this were the league uh, and Premier League seasons from 2020 to 2021 that just finished. And in both of these leagues, for the first time ever, uh, playing at home became a disadvantage. And for the first time in the history of these leagues, uh, away teams outperformed home teams on the whole for the entire season, which you know was shocking to me. I, I didn't even think that could happen with that big a sample size. Well, what's your read on that? At a you know ten foot pole distance, what when you look at that, what do you think the factors are in that, and why? Maybe also why England, why why France? It's hard to say why England and France. Um, maybe it's the northwest. The northwest air is doing something to them. Um, but, you know, like I said, there was this pattern did happen in other leagues. You know, there was a reduction in the amounts by which home teams would be favored over away teams. But home teams all still had the advantage. And these leagues went way beyond what happened. And uh, France, France is kind of hard to say because it's a very even distribution. But what's what's really bizarre about this and what I think is the most interesting thing I found while doing a bit of research is that, you know, Every, every other table I looked at with this, there was no correlation between home versus away performance and league position, right? You could have a team that plays way better home than away be in 19th place or a team that plays way better home than away be in first place. There's no real consistency. And every season is just kind of scattered around. But in England, in 2020, 2021, uh, there is a very, very clear pattern for how teams are affected. And what happens is that all of the top teams played way worse and all of the bad teams kept their home field advantage. And the numbers on this, you know, nine of the 20 teams in the Premier League still had a positive record at home compared to what they did away. But of those nine teams, uh, seven of them are in the bottom nine of the table. And the two exceptions are West Ham, who I said earlier, I have a bit to talk about, and Tottenham. Who finished sixth and seventh? And you know, before we get into more of this, do you know what West Ham and Tottenham have in common? Talking about home field advantage, uh, new grounds. No, they both new, have new grounds. New stadiums. They're yeah. the only two Premier League teams with stadiums built in the last five years. Uh, so it's like that, the, the illusion of wealth is what does well. This, what maybe. qualifies you? I, I'm not sure if that's what it is. I, I think there might be another factor here, but they're the only two teams. Uh, besides the bottom ones I already mentioned that have that have new stadiums. And I don't know. I, I think there might be some kind of connection to that. So just just telling you this, Martin, I mean what 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 do you make of this? That good teams are now doing better away than at home. Well whereas bad teams have just maintained the status quo for the most part. I think my gut reaction is probably a reversion to just assume that Pressure gets to be so high and unrealistic for some of these clubs with so much on the line, such global fan bases, so much money in the balance that it ends up just having such an unrealistic and negative, like, like it's just unrealistic expectations have this negative impact. And even if a team finishes second, they get belittled because they didn't get first. The top four race, it doesn't matter if your team gets fourth and gets Champions League because historically your team was better than the team that got third. But now that you got fourth, it's a problem. And I think that for these top clubs, maybe my gut reaction would be that it's less of a hunt for glory and more of a avoidance of 
falling too far. And you see that with, I think, I mean, the mo- I, I don't want to make this a podcast talking about these two clubs because everyone talks about them and everyone's belittling them right now, but, or at least in the past few months, but Arsenal and Tottenham, Arsenal in particular are two examples of clubs that like in the last, in the recent history have done really well. Arsenal in the longer history have done really well. Arsenal yeah. are one of the, like the staple clubs of England historically. And somehow people just still have this expectation that they are going to perform at a level that can compete with the others they used to compete with. Even if they consistently do not put in those performances, do not recruit those types of players and don't have the managers that are up to snuff. And I think that what's fascinating about that is like every Arsenal fan still believes they should be making top four, but should be based on what criteria it's based on this lingering thing. But if you look at Arsenal and what I I think is very interesting, if you look at their recruitment this past summer, right, we've, we've talked about this a little bit, maybe like off the air. I think they have, I think just finally started to accept in their recruitment a little bit that it's like, they are now a mid table side. This is nothing against Arsenal fans. This is nothing against my friends that support Arsenal. It's just they are kind of stopping with trying to sign the creme de la creme and being out of their depths with players that just don't want to play there. You know, they're not going to, they're, 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 they're pulling back from signing Lautaro Martinez and trying to get him. And they're going for Ben White, which is a great player, but not a top four player, but a player that can very soundly anchor a a defense in the middle of a table. And so that's kind of like the the club is like almost starting to just be like, okay, maybe for a couple years, we're just going to have to be okay getting eighth because that's just what we can handle right now. We have a lot of young talent, this and that we've had some weird exits with players that were supposed to come in like Alexis and Ozil and whoever that ended up leaving that were going to be superstars. We just need to accept it, but fans no. will never let that happen. Yeah, and and like you said, they haven't updated their expectations. And it's not just looking at Arsenal, it's looking at the teams around them. I mean, getting fourth in the Premier League takes a lot more now than it did 10, 15 years ago. Right? Right. With the way some of these other clubs, you know, like West Ham, for example, have strengthened. Um, it's tough, and I think I think that's a really good explanation for this, just all that pressure. And I think you know, one way you could look at this is just like pure numbers, right? Like the big clubs have bigger stadiums with more fans. So it's more of a change when they're all gone. And, you know, that's that's a bigger effect. But I think another way to look at it is when you just look at like the overall fan interaction that uh, that these clubs have. And for a big club like a Manchester City or Liverpool, the, the actual match day going fan is a much, much smaller popular percentage of the general fan population than it would be at a club like West Brom. You know, so for these teams, you know, they're still getting all of this negative noise on social media that that, you know, they get every single year, no matter what. But now this whole positive impact uh, of, of having the fans in the stadium, that's been stripped away. But they still have all that media noise. And, you know, maybe for a smaller team that that is uh, just a bit more even across the board, I guess, you know, maybe there's not as many people online abusing Sheffield United players as there are abusing Liverpool players. That's just a guess. I haven't seen it as much. One could also imagine a situation in which a smaller side feels more emboldened when it isn't so intimidating to go to opposition grounds that do legitimately feel scary when you're in the bus and people are throwing flares at you and banging on the windows, which again, I don't know if that happens when Burnley goes to play Chelsea, but for Burnley, 
instead of walking into a packed Stamford Bridge where people are still going to curse at you, now it's almost like, okay, more of a level playing field here. Yeah. And, and maybe that grants them a certain impetus to be less fearful. And I think playing with fear is one of the worst things you can do. And so without the fear, maybe you give the underdog more of a fighting chance in the, psycho in the psychological warfare that goes on yeah. subcutaneously. Oh, Christ, you got it again. Um, I think I think even looking at the other side of that, it's like, you know, you have these teams like a Burnley who, you know, Burnley played Manchester City twice in the season. And the one where that's at the head he had will usually be looked at as, oh, we're going to smash them. But then when you go to Burnley, it's like, oh, this is a tough away trip. And maybe the teams that are more used to using their home field as their advantage, we're like, we may not be as good, but this is all we have. You know, they're more used to kind of defending that territory in a sense we're able to lean on that better this season. And it was less, less of a foreign thing. They were more just be able to be like, all right, well, we're going to have the fans, but we're used to defending this ground. We're used to relying on that. And, you know, maybe there's something there. I, don't know. I think it might be a stretch too, but I would maybe propose that for a team that is a smaller side that looks to typically, yeah, like establish a fort. Um, maybe it feels like less of an, like, it feels like there's less incongruence with the idea of establishing a fort when you don't have a bunch of enemies around you, when you can go away somewhere and establish a fort and legitimately feel like it's fair game, as opposed to this weird psychology of like, all right, we're going to bunker down, but we're literally surrounded by the opponent in a way that maybe makes it feel a little disingenuous. And again, I, I haven't looked at, at kind of the things that you really want to dive into for this episode, but I, I, I know one thing that we can either get into now or at the tail end is just about all of the significance of just the game here. Because one of the things that I've thought about too is this idea that like we talk as much as we want about whether sport has any sort of like true grounded importance or if sport really exists, if there aren't people to make believe that it does. And there's a possibility that when players are awakened to the reality that them physically kicking a paneled leather ball into an onion bag, when they realize that that actually has no significance, maybe that's a really soulless realization and a really sobering one at that. Because I think that one of the things that fans bring is they allow for that make-believe to really happen. Because as much as we want to convince ourselves, as much as I try to convince myself that there is just like inherent physical, tangible, material value in these sports, at the end of the day, when you look at what they're doing, nothing is, nothing is going on. The beauty of this is that it means yeah. so much for so many people, and yet it's utterly meaningless. And what's fascinating, what, when, when there's no one there to just all together, it's like money. You look yeah. at money, everyone collectively buys into the fact that money has some significance, but at the end of the day, it's rags and, and stamped metal. And the day that everyone stops believing that money is money, we will not have any, well, we, I'm sure people have researched this. We won't have the social, like the socioeconomic classes and all of this wealth disparity. It's just going to be like, yeah. you know, the purge. What I'm saying is basically when everybody, if everybody stops believing that soccer is a thing and st stops believing that, you know, you scoring awards you this incentive and this incentive puts you in this position at a table, which warrants you certain cash prizes and all this stuff. Once you stop buying into that charade, suddenly you're just like, well, what are we even doing here? And when that happens, 
that's a level of despair that's hard to recover from. So maybe I should have left that for the end of the episode, but it's something that I've thought about yeah. too, where it's well, like, we'll just, we're all the, here. we'll just end the episode here. It's fine. <laughs> I already said my curse word. What I'm saying is like, we all have to collectively buy in to almost everything in this world. And, you know, imagine if any company out there, any commercial product company stops having customers and again it's it's customers are weird here because some of the customers consume the product virtually and some of them consume it in the stadium whatever there's a the analogy breaks up there but imagine yeah. if <laughs> someone that uh, imagine if a farmer stops having people to eat the food yeah uh, oh no what's the, big problem what's the, what's the purpose why are we doing this and and so is the farmer going to continue to farm if no one's there to eat the crops is the tech company going to keep making phones and computers if no one's going to buy them and use them what's the purpose is it fulfilling to just go through the motions of doing it to do it because you're good at doing it and you've always done it or do you need the recipient of the creation that you've worked so hard to make that's that's a that's got to vary by player, right? There's got to be both types in there for sure. And you know, I'll say for me, you know, I I still watch soccer and loved it when there were no fans there. I I know you still have the fans online and stuff, but you know, even if even without that greater meaning, I think I can still appreciate it for what it is, even if you know. But I, I get what you're saying, right? If you're Harry Kane and you're in the Spurs stadium and you have thousands of people scream at you, oh, th this guy's sick every week, and then they're all gone. You're going to be thinking, oh, wait, am I really sick? It's, it's a bit of an existential crisis. And with that existential crisis, let's pause, take a quick break, and we'll be back on the other side of the half. Welcome back, guys, to half two electric boogaloo. Uh, we're going to talk about existential crises and um, maybe have one in the second half. So what I want to start talking about, actually, I'm entirely kidding about that. We don't have to be too down on all of this uh, for the entirety of the episode. But what I do want to discuss um, is maybe just a little bit more of a rapid fire sequence of things that I think factors I mentioned before, things beneath the skin that... Um, people maybe haven't necessarily discussed or have thought about, but I want to kind of collect here. So the first thing that I want to bring to the table is this idea of emotional contagion. Um, it's a thing that's been studied within the confines of sports psychology, but I also was listening to something today in which they talked about it in the context of animals and human interactions. And basically the idea of emotional contagion, it can be kind of construed in much, multiple different ways, but it's this idea that we feed off of the energy and the actions and the expressions of others. And it's a very intuitive thing, but there's lots of research that supplements this. Mm -hmm. And within the context of sports psychology, um, one thing that like I have always thought about, and I may actually write a piece on this, or maybe we have an entire episode on emotional contagion because I think it's fascinating. One of the things that I always found incredible about watching Gianluigi Buffon play is that after every single save that Buffon makes, he, Chiellini, Bonucci, Barzagli, whomever was there, the center back pairing and him would always proceed to do just like chest bumps, fist bumps. They'd smack each other on the back of the head. Like they were brothers, you know, like the younger yeah. brothers and or cousins that you go visit for a holiday. Just being, you know, 
they were just being dudes together. I know that's an obnoxious thing to say, but yeah. the whole idea when people saw that were like, that was the assumption. It's like, oh, they're just being dudes. It's just, you know, it's hormones flowing. But, but realistically, what they're doing is actually a very, very brilliant thing. It's this idea of emotional contagion where after a player makes a brilliant save, I would, if anything, always, if I say my captain were a center back, I would always encourage them and just be like, listen, there is a huge psychological impact that physical contact, that demonstrating energy and enthusiasm can have on your fellow teammates. And so what they were doing in all of these instances was just feeding off each other, feeding off each other. And this is something that's been studied within the context of PK shootouts um, in which players that are, you know, that they embrace their own goalkeeper or when they're going up to, you know, to take the penalty, they make some, they hug a teammate or they shake with a teammate or a couple and it shows that that's just this grounding kind of physical contact, emotionally contagious thing. And this idea that if you celebrate when you score, it can further build this feeling that the tide is, is flowing in your favor. And the reason I bring this up is because I think there's a lot of emotional contagion at play, though less direct and less one-on-one. I think the transaction is more so the... the, the the contagion between those that are playing and what I would basically just consider to be the entity that is the crowd. And I think that that is a huge element of all of this. And and it's hard to pinpoint, you know, why having people in the stands inherently may make the way that you play better. But I think that's one huge thing. We talked about the ability to get into a state of flow. I think this notion that when you do something correct and so many other people agree that it was correct and express that it was correct, you will just physiologically feed off of the reaction that they get. And I think that that is something that certainly plays a role here. Um, And I think that's the term that best describes it. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? Like, do you, do you feel as though that is something that you've sensed or you've perceived with players that you've coached, things of that nature? Maybe it's just something that only occurs at the larger scale. I don't know. No, I think it's it's a pretty universal concept, that emotional contagion. I've, I've seen that in my players for sure, and I've definitely always been someone who's, uh, you know, tried to give that kind of strong encouragement right after good stuff. I can I can see that it kind of feeds into the energy and, you know, it gets you gets you in the zone, right? I think so too. Um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, sometimes just like being dudes is the way to go, you know? I think that one of the interesting things that came up recently that maybe is kind of takes takes that to the next level. I, I think it departs from being emotional contagion, but there was a recent example between Marseille and Nice that occurred uh, a couple of days ago. It was last whatever last match week where um, Dimitri Payet was at a corner about to swing one in. I didn't watch the game, but I just saw some things afterwards. And there was a bottle that was thrown at him from the stands, as tends to happen. You know, I'm sure you've seen the clip of Danny Alves being thrown a banana, which obviously had racial undertones. And then he ate the banana and it was all over YouTube with, you know, nine million views that Danny Alves had ended racism, whatever. But this was interesting because Pyatt gets slammed in the back and I'm sure there was some vitriol throughout the match between the whatever, the home, the, the away team and the home fans. And he clearly looks incredibly exacerbated, like personally insulted as anyone would if a bottle were thrown at their back and he grabs it and just starts throwing it back in the stands. And the fans start pelting the 
players that begin to rush in with more and more stuff. They keep throwing it back. Gwen Doozy gets involved, which, you know, anytime uh, Gwen Doozy gets involved, it's a problem. Someone's, someone's getting hurt. Someone's getting choked out. Yep. Someone's getting, you know, beaten <laughs> there you know but i think the, pro the the interesting thing that happened was like you had suddenly like fans basically burst through the barricades through the poor stewards that are that always seem to be incompetent there's never been there's rarely been a steward that i you see that's like you know chasing a streaker and they're like really athletic and they tackle them with grace it's always these people that are just hired to do this and like i could never possibly imagine attending a game like that and having to look away from the pitch while being right next to it but yeah. they it's just a flood of people just rush into it like there there's pictures in the locker room after of the marseille players that have you know marks on their neck or like uh, you know blood or markings here and there and there was a member of, I believe, the Marseille staff, maybe it was the Nice staff, I don't remember, who was like videotaped sprinting to the area of the action. And he like throat punches one of the fans that comes in. And the fan just looks like a, he falls like a sack of bricks, like Luis Suarez for a celebration way back in the day, like just falls down and was allegedly hospitalized. And now that member of the medical staff is going to be banned for years. All of this, all of this crap basically happened. And it was kind of like this sudden reminder of like, okay, there can be problems with when yeah. you bring these people back in. You know, people were huge fans of Leeds this past year because every, everybody had Leeds as their second team. You know, <laughs> everybody was like, oh yeah, like I support tottenham but you know if tottenham's not playing i'm supporting leeds and then they like, have to every, deal with the leeds fans you know <laughs> because people don't know what it's like in the modern era to go to ellen road and to sit there and to be involved in all of that and people haven't known the man united leeds rivalry as it exists <sighs> for many of those people they've been you know They've seen it as the Man United Chelsea rivalry, but realistically, like there's something even darker, even more potent hiding in the shadows. And it came out this last match week. Like things like that, where you start to yeah. see just some of the grimmer side of things. And I know that, you know, there were a lot of instances where there were statements of activism over the course of quarantine and lots of people doing things uh, for inclusivity and diversity and anti racism. You could probably imagine as, as again, as unfortunate as it sounds that with fans in the stadium, when those things were so hot in the, in the news, you would have seen a lot of backlash in a way that would have been very, very ugly. Yeah, and it, it made it a lot easier to do it. And you know, there, there has been backlash now or over the summer, you know, there, there is a lot of it. And you know, yeah, I was going to say like fans, this whole racism thing, you know, that's, it's been awful for years in all these different countries, you know. And you know, for better or worse, if you don't have the fans in the stadium, that that is something you don't have to deal with. And maybe that's not the best way to get that out, but nothing else they've tried has seemed to work really. So I don't know. But this is this is just leading to the next thing. It's like fans fans can be awful, right? They they can often be bad. I think no club is immune from this. You know, I, I see some stuff where like someone will say something racist, and someone people will be like, "Oh, well, he wasn't a real Liverpool fan anyway." It's like, well, what does that mean, right? So, I don't know. I I guess this is just gonna be a bit negative towards fans in general. But like, I I don't know. Maybe this is a weird thing 
say I don't I don't care that much about the other fans of my club. I don't care that much about other Liverpool fans. We have a common interest. And I don't know, like how how do you feel about that, Martin? Do you feel like you have any kind of kinship with Barcelona fans or City fans, or is it is it the same thing where you know you support the same team, but beyond that, eh, you know, take them or leave them. I don't really want to have like rose tinted frames on and say something like, Oh, of course I feel a a bond with these people. I do. I do think that I have a certain emotional attachment to people that have that same vested interest. What what I do think happens though, I think your point previously was very interesting about the fact that like this, there's this idea, this glorification of a fan base. And there's this idea that like, you know, the Lazio fans are problematic for certain anti-Semitic reasons and things like that, right? Historically, things that have been embedded in certain clubs. And and that's possible. That's very possible. I mean, there's been a lot of, I mean, Sparta, what was it? Uh, Praha this year had all those issues with the yeah. fact that there was the one player that said that thing to Glenn Kamara. And uh, I'm not going to weigh in on that, on that conversation. What I will say is there are maybe certain countries that maybe have a propensity that are maybe for, less advanced in their efforts to combat some of these societal issues. Absolutely. Will... And, and I'm not trying to say that like all clubs are like equally moral or whatever in this. I know there are clubs that have legitimate issues like, you know, Lazio had had in the past with that sort of thing. And, you know, Everton fans are all just like clinically insane or whatever, but <laughs> that sounds biased. I, I guarantee like, any club, you know, there's, there's going to be some fans who are fantastic people, even at Lazio or Rangers, or whatever leads, whoever these teams are that have bad reputations. And there's going to be fans of every club that are just absolutely terrible people. You know, there's no avoiding it, especially with global fan bases like this. So that's the thing that I think I want to mention, like on the back of the comment that I just made that I think would, t- would tend to suggest that there are maybe certain areas, you know, certain clubs that are, that are, have a certain problem or a certain ethos that makes them dislikable. I, I also think that the fact of the matter is every single club in some capacity is just a microcosm of the world at large and probably more directly a microcosm of their own communities, but their own communities are representative in some capacity of the world we all inhabit. And like you said, I think there are horrible people that are fans of Barca. I think there are wonderful people that are fans of Barca. I think it is very ignorant to to suggest that one could ignore the faults of everyone that is a part of a fan base as a result of the fact that they are in fact in the same one as you. And so I think that maybe what this has done too is lift the curtain a bit on the fact that it's not so glorious that a lot of clubs have problems with a variety of different things because the club in and of itself, I mean, it, like you said, it's a thing that we all share and we all appreciate, but it's not a geographic boundary. It's not a ideological boundary for the most part, at least outside of, you know, football pedagogy. Like it's, it tends to be something that people associate with, but that does not just because someone, like I said, is with you on this doesn't mean that they're with you politically doesn't mean they're with you socioeconomically doesn't mean that they're with you in terms of your other beliefs there's a lot of room for scum of the earth and you know the finest of the fine and who you support doesn't necessarily wholly indicate those other kind of things that you represent and i i think especially for us martin uh, us, us americans over here so detached from it all right I and mean, this this is who you support is a decision you make at a very young age and we've talked about this before but you know, it's it's random in a lot of ways and you know that's that's not the case for people who live there and maybe some of this stuff doesn't have as much bearing for people who were born and raised in liverpool or manchester or whatever but i mean I, do we have an option right 
I see English people telling American people all the time, oh, go, go support your local club. It's like, we don't have a local club, right? I, I coach in my local club, but they're 14 and they suck. If I want to see some good soccer, like the, the closest I can go is two hours away. I mean, the state of Illinois is bigger than England, right? I imagine yeah. you have to drive halfway across the country to go watch your local team. You, you probably wouldn't have as much of a, but you have to support your local club mentality as you would. So, and there's no, yeah, what's besides what's beside the point is that the Chicago fire have been like dead last in the yeah, conference for the past decade. So it wouldn't even be that I mean, enriching I mean, of a trip. If I was able to get out there in five minutes, I wouldn't care about that, you know, and I'd, I'd be a miserable Chicago fire fan. But I mean, it's just, it, it's two hours away. Right. And, you know, with games on a weeknight, that might as well be across the ocean. It's all the same. It's it's tough. And it, I think that's weird, too, because, you know, the when when you're in England, right, I guess like everyone's everyone's into soccer or football or whatever they call it. Right. And the main thing you would have in common is like, oh, everyone's into soccer. But with these people, these people are Liverpool fans. And I'm a Liverpool fan. So we're going to be friends. And like in America, People aren't really that into soccer, so like I would just be for, oh, this person's into soccer. That's good enough. I don't care what club they support. And because of this, you know, most of my friends, all of my friends actually, support different clubs than me. Right? Martin is a city Bayern. I've got friends. I have a friend who actually supports Bayern. Like, Did you just say right, Bayern I said, I mean, for me? They're they're in the same Champions League group. Is that a good? Oh excuse? my. Yeah, yeah. my. Okay. That's, that's what I meant. Um, I'm wary of that. I have fans who support United, Chelsea. I have a fan who started supporting Everton just to spite me. And, you know, they're all great people. And the only <laughs> the only other Liverpool <laughs> fan I know is, like, the one person in my life I genuinely hate right now. So it's like, how, how much could it really mean, right? <laughs> Can I really put that much bearing on what club you support? Can I, like... Watch watch a United game on TV where they lose to Burnley, and watch like a six year old girl crying in the stands and be like, "Ah, yeah, screw that kid, <laughs> idiot." Should have supported Liverpool. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's a certain amount of detachment. I don't know what team does Joey support. Uh, Liverpool, yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you indoctrinated the cat into? Uh, uh, what are you talking about? Uh, is your cat not named Joey? Oh, I thought you were talking about uh, Joe. E, uh, oh no! Else. I'm talking about the cat. What, no, the what cat, team does my, the cat support? My cat died uh, two years ago, but he was <laughs> he was he was a big Swansea supporter before that. Oh my god! I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry. I was going to make a fun. joke about Joey, but maybe now in his wake, I shouldn't. Well, it was it was, it was two years ago, so maybe that's past. We'll see. Are you okay psychologically from that trauma? It better be funny, Martin. That's all I'll I say. I don't mean to be tongue in cheek. No, the only thing I was going to mention is like, I, this is an insane aside and incredibly irrelevant, but I have a slight disdain for animals generally. And I know that sounds very just, I mean, Americans yeah. love their pets and I didn't grow up with them and have a hereditary thing in my family where we're all terrified of dogs. Anyway, weirdo. Uh, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of cats either. They weird me out, but I'm getting more and more used to them as I spend more time around them. Anyway, back when I was younger, I used to spend time watching Liverpool games and Swansea games now that I remember. Um, John Joe Shelby, icon of those teams. But I, I would go Very to clear. Will's house. He, he had a tattoo of John Joe Shelby, actually. He was a huge fan. Interesting. Joey was a special cat. Um, I, I remember going over to your house and probably the first interaction I had with Joey was I was sitting on your couch and the cat came up to me 
it's the reason that I'm not terribly fond of cats. And looked, it was an orange cat, correct? You would probably remember better I'm than I do. Really curious where this is going, Martin. So Joey looks um, me dead in, dead in the face, and he looks me right in the eyes, and we make eye contact. And it was it was scintillating for a moment. It was beautiful for a moment. I saw his eyes twinkle. He saw mine twinkle. We had a connection. And then the cat turned around because obviously he wanted to watch John Joe Shelby, and flicked its tail up in the air at me, kind of like you know a sassy maneuver. And just showed me its dirty butthole. And I don't know what that is in cat social environments, but I was so put off by it um, that I think I never went back to your house ever again. So that's my uh, funny story about your now deceased cat. I'm so sorry. Um, but that is my fondest or more most jarring memory of that little kitty. So... I, I'm like genuinely in shock, Martin. I don't, I don't know what that was. I don't know how we got onto that story. <laughs> you guys, you guys aren't here all. to see Will's mouth just agape for the last five seconds. I, I just, are, are we still recording? What's happening? <laughs> okay, so let's get what back to this. It. That was delightful. Um, but as much as you know, Joey's legacy will live on. Um, let's talk no, about no, no. The... Was, like what? What was the point of that? Was, why did you bring that up? How did we get to cats? You brought it up. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> oh, you were saying that the the only other Liverpool fan in your life is the one that you oh, are not a fan of yeah. right now. Um, and then I asked about the cat in an attempt to be funny. But since you don't laugh on the podcast, uh, here we are. These are the consequences of your actions, William. I, I, I wouldn't laugh at that ever, Martin. <laughs> and I didn't either. Let me tell you, it's the fuel for my trauma. But okay. Back, getting back on track, let's talk about referees because we talked about this briefly um, earlier on in the Touchline Theory saga, and I want to spend maybe one or two minutes on it, but referees are impacted by fans, yes or no? What do you think? Uh, yeah, of course. I was a referee once, and boy, did I get impacted by them, let me tell you. <laughs> so I think that's another thing that's been hugely discussed, but I also think it's important to note in this conversation where... Um, if there's anyone that feels the pressure of fans, it's probably the guy who has no one rooting for him or her. Yeah. Um, and so that's another thing that I think is important. I think on top of that, if we talk about field dynamics, um, again, I'm just rattling things off here. Um, I think generally the, the idea of adrenaline, the idea of urgency, these concepts that come into play, or in the case of adrenaline, this very real, again, physiological thing, they, they come into play, but they need a certain like activation threshold to be surpassed. And I think it's very hard for players to feel that shot of adrenaline that allows them to break through a terrible tackle and still keep dribbling or to, to hit a shot first time when it's probably above their skill level, but they can still manage to do it anyway. Like those, those things need a certain driving force to get them to happen and I do think that one of the impacts of not having fans in the stadium, whether it be this idea that they fuel you in some way that is, you know, whether it's the contagion concept we discussed or whether it's like physically seeing people smiling and cheering for you in one way or another, I do think that if I had to coach one of these teams in one of these games, it would be very difficult to instill the importance of coming out the gates guns a-blazing 
compared to what it would be if you came out to a roaring crowd that was expecting you and you haven't seen in a week or two. Yeah, uh, for sure. I'm sorry. I'm still just completely taken aback by uh, the last thing you said. <laughs> we can't let the cat derail the entire episode. I, what do you think? I, 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 I let's talk I about want this, to. right? I didn't want to. Uh, so urgency. If you you when you are training your team, doing any sort of exercise in training, one of the things that's important to get is like this sense of like, all right, we want to try to stimulate match performance or match level performance so that we can all genuinely improve somehow. And we don't want this to be lackluster and lazy. So you want to get them dialed in. You want to get them playing with urgency. How, how do you cultivate that when the environment just completely falls short of the grandeur that exists when you have a packed stadium? It's it, difficult. It's, it's very hard. Right. And, you know, the, the classic thing coach will do to simulate pressure is, you know, create their own, you know, even though there aren't real stakes and it's just practice, you can just say, okay, well, whoever loses this has to go run a lap or something, or whoever loses this, I'm going to tweet some abuse at later tonight or something like that. I don't know what coaches do. <laughs> Proprietary Algren methods. Yeah, that's good. I've got three burner accounts. I don't think they figured out. <laughs> you tweet more on your burner accounts than you do the real account. I'm still waiting for your tweet you promised last episode. I said I might make a tweet, Martin. Oh, I should. <laughs> so, and you know yeah. how to sidestep the lawyers. Well, I, I always think ahead on these things. But uh, okay, urgency fundamentally then. I, I am of the opinion that that is such a hard thing to build. And yeah. That is something that typically maybe the coach in the locker room says something to the effect of, all right, lads, first five minutes. Aside from that, it isn't necessarily, the onus isn't so much onto them. But when you don't have this environment that is so conducive to being focused because yeah. people are focusing on you, now suddenly the focus, the, 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 the onus does fall on the players, on the captains, on the coaches. And, and this is one of those intangible things yeah. that is so hard to instill. Yeah, and you know, there's there's that risk, right? You see at the start of the game, people say, "Oh, he hadn't he hadn't gotten ready yet. He hadn't woken up. He hadn't adapted." And like, if there's not people yelling at you to wake up, that might be even harder to make that quick switch into the star games. And I think I think there was a, I don't remember um, the exact stat on this, but I'm pretty sure there was something about this uh, without fans, like first half goals, like it dropped massively compared to second half ones. It seemed like there was a bit longer of a warm up period needed before teams really got into gear in these empty stadium games, which is a, that was an interesting dynamic. I think that what goes with that too, is that there's just this less of an, in, of an incentive to entertain, right? One of the yeah. big things with having people in the stands is this feeling of like not only do i have a pressure on me to win but the people that are here don't want me to win one zero for the most part most fan bases want to see as much action as possible right that's the reason fast and furious has had like 10 renditions none of which i've seen they people yeah. want action people want cars colliding and big muscular guys and and all these action packed guns all this stuff can, I, for can I tell you about a scene from Fast and Furious since you got your own? Yeah, okay, let's hear right. it. It better not have I, a cat in it. I've seen one of the Fast and Furious movies. It was uh, it was at a soccer tournament back when I was playing. We had nothing to do after a game one night. And we're like, let's go out and see Fast and Furious. And it was it was a terrible movie. But my favorite line in it was um, the the final the final battle of the film. The film? Yeah. Is in a parking garage, <laughs> and uh, you know they've they've been running into each other with cars for a few minutes at this point. The cars the cars are all broken. They're like, oh man, we gotta 
go go do this old school. They get out, they get ready for a fist fight, and then uh, Vin Diesel, the star of these movies and a, a real master of words, says, "You know the thing about a street fight is the street always wins." And then he he stomps on the floor of the parking garage, and it collapses and it kills the other guy, and that's how the movie ends. Did you feel exhilarated as a result of that experience? Absolutely. <laughs> Did you have trouble going to bed that night because your I, blood Mar- was just pumping? Like I'll be honest, animal? Martin, I, I still have trouble going to bed, and that scene is a big <laughs> reason for it. I that sounds like, to me like... The, I, the street always wins. That's kind of shock. <laughs> I that reminds me the the Stan Collymore piece that I wrote recently that I I tweeted out when there was something that Alexi Lalas said um, that was just totally ridiculous and he actually sent a message back to me on Twitter which we both found pretty amusing. Um, I love it. Oh my god! All of that all all of that preamble basically just to say in that Stan Collymore piece that I talked about like football conservatives versus football progressives. One of the things that I said at the end, which is, I mean, ugh, blech, yuck. So stereotypical to say in these types of conversations is just this is quote, but I don't remember who it was that said something to the effect of, you know, don't fight with pigs. You both get muddy and the pig enjoys it. Reminds me of Vin Diesel with his foot yeah. stomp on the asphalt. But anyway, <laughs> somehow trying to avoid this just derailing train of an episode. Um, I I think the entertainment factor is huge here. Um, uh, Even if Fast and Furious wasn't all that entertaining, it was for a lot of people. And that's why there are so many people that continue to consume that flaming garbage. And it's also why in less insulting way, um, so many people just desire action-packed football because it's just easier to appreciate it's the low-hanging fruit it's what in my upcoming piece that i'll hopefully release sometime soon i'm calling pub cheers which is these things that everyone when you're at the bar and everyone's drunk and spilling drinks everyone can just erupt exactly that's that's exactly what it is and i think it's just like it's easy to root for that and so when suddenly these players are there and they're like oh uh, maybe I don't need to actually try this really tough through ball because the incentive of pulling it off is just a little lesser in terms of the oohs and ahs that I'll get as the immediate feedback. Maybe I'll just do this something more conservative. And maybe what that does is it spirals and translates into fewer first half goals. You know, there's fewer players that get there that are just like, ooh, it is my job to make sure these people make their purchase for the ticket well worth it. And now it's more just like, I mean, like no one paid for this kind of, they paid for their Peacock subscription. And then maybe they go in at halftime and the coach says, all right, come on, we need to give them a show boys. And then they do a bit better in the second half, but it it takes that bit of time to get settled in. Give who a show though. Right. Cause this is another thing that was a huge, I mean, I agree. I agree exactly with what you're saying, but maybe this is just a transition to all the ways in which people tried to simulate the presence (laughs) of fans, because once the fans left, Everyone was like, we need the fans back. And naturally, since the fans are simply inanimate objects, the, res- the, 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 the response for many clubs was to put cardboard cu- cutouts yeah. in the stands or to overlay graphics onto the broadcast that were just pixelated Minecraft blobs that yeah. were just like this impression a- that there was something there. You and what the NBA did? What did the NBA do? No, I didn't see yeah, they had They had... In the place of stands, they had a huge like television screen, and you could uh, get your picture up on there. You could have a live feed of you sitting at home watching the game, which I thought was just 
I, I, I don't know. I, I look at that and I'm like, what, what kind of world are we living in, Martin? What's it's going dysto- on? It's a little dystopian. I remember when I was watching, what was it, USA, Qatar, when the Qatari player missed the penalty in the Gold Cup or whatever. Um, I remember that there was like on the broadcast, I was watching, I think, on Fubo, on Tudene or something like that. There was like at the bottom left-hand corner, you know how there's always like these little graphics where you're watching like Champions League and suddenly you get something that's like, Pachuca is playing this random other team in a league that you don't watch. Oh, did it, it's like, did it just show like a fan reaction? <laughs> yes. So it, it just pulled up like this cell phone and it took up way too much space. And it was just like these like American or Mexican or Canadian or Qatari families just like cheering. Oh and it was God. like the entire game was happening underneath that. <laughs> and it's just like one of those things where it's like, we are trying so hard to overcompensate for it's this absence oh. that we're, that we're doing things that are just so absurdist. I mean, think about it. Cardboard cutouts. If yeah. you are maybe watching the broadcast, maybe it gives you the sense for, oh, there are, you know, holographic people there. But for the players, oh. for the players to walk out and see mannequins, oh, but what on earth? But, okay, <laughs> there is that initial weird thing. But like you said, you know, once, once you get into the flow of the game, then maybe it does something where maybe you're not thinking about that. You just see the flash of color out of the corner of your eye. And, you know, you think for a second that you're just back to normal. I could see how it would work. But, Ugh. you know, it, it is that that first moment is just pure comedy walking out on the field. And <laughs> Or if you if you play for a certain South Korean team, I don't know if you heard about this. They had a sex dolls out there instead. I did I love see that. that. I'm, pr- I'm pretty I- sure that there were some clubs that sent in images of well-known terrorists. So lots of dark humor in all of this. That's good stuff. I think my favorite, my favorite uh, kind of fan replacement that any of these clubs did was Manchester City. Actually, your team, who just put the big banners that said "We're not really here" all over the seats, which I thought was, you know. Tasteful, very, very nice. It was quite fun. Interesting. I hadn't actually picked up on that. That is yeah. nice. I, I guess the again, the thing that I, I think is just interesting about that is like, what are the fans there for? Are they, are they there for our comfort when we're watching from home and we're all sad about the pandemic and people's lives are being lost, genuinely speaking? Or are they there to supplement the players and fuel them? Because if I walk into a stadium and I just see this like it's like a haunted house full of basically like ghosts. I mean, if you had trouble sleeping after the Vin Diesel moment, I would have trouble sleeping after I played in a stadium full of images of people expressionless. I go to the corner to celebrate and tear my shirt off and use the corner flag as a spear. And I'm just staring into the abyss of someone's empty pupils that is worse. That is just worse. At least you don't have those cutouts at your practice. You don't have a bunch of like this. Oh, I couldn't that that I thought was awful. What, what are yeah. the fans for? What are the spectators for? What do you think? Is it more for the players or is it more for was it more like a tasteful thing to make us feel like the world wasn't ending when in fact it seemed as though it was? I, I think it's more for us. I think the players, they're more mature than all that. They don't really care. It's like the the fake crowd noise was only for the fans. They weren't playing that in the stadiums. See, that I, I, think a, I think it's the same thing. That was such a controversial thing too. What was your take I, on that? I know you mentioned you liked hearing the players and stuff. Absolutely hated it. I mean, like I said, I I could do with that crowd noise at the best of times, but when it's not even real, it's like I don't know. I mean, I get I get why the networks did it, right? Uh, you know, we try to keep this podcast PG. Uh, the players on a soccer field do not try to keep anything. <laughs> right? 
and for for you know sports which has long been like one of the best general audiences no censorship money makers for all these companies i completely get why they try to drown out that noise with you know a bit of harmless ambiance but interesting I, I hated it right it was just i i felt like there were a few weeks before they started doing this that I was like oh my god like i i'm like there like i can hear what they're saying like i have it felt like a level of access that like was just special right that, it feels that, it feels like it's only you there and i don't know there's there's something to be said for the fan experience but getting to feel like it's just you watching these 22 world-class players in this empty stadium you know that's that's something special too because because i can i can relate to that right i i can't relate to the players when when they're out there on the field but when they're all just out there and they've got the coaching staff and the benches there and they're all talking to each other that those are really the moments where i felt like okay like this this has connection to the soccer i know and i've actually seen in my real life like i i understand like where this is coming from and i think that can get lost sometimes with these big crowds and turning into this huge spectacle you know this whole thing where it's like oh it's it's the establishment of liverpool against the establishment of man city you forget that it's just you know it's it's just a game still and i think taking taking all that stuff taking the fans away from it you know, it made it very clear that it was just a game. And that was that was refreshing for me because it kind of made me reevaluate. It's like, look, even without all this, like, it's still fun. I still love it. Like, it was, it was really nice. I almost feel like anything that I say after that will sully the, your comments. I think what you've said uh, is brilliant. I, I think, like, I, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Frankly, the idea that it's something that could actually generate a sense of personalization for the fan... I totally agree with you. When there was this stretch of time where like we didn't hear anything but the players arguing and you know it wasn't you see somebody mouth some Argentine player mouth you know some string of curse words and you know the Argentine family laughs and then all the other Americans at the bar are like oh what did he say? Like that always happens and this was like you got to see Griezmann and PK on a corner kick actually arguing and getting mad at each other and while that was the type of thing that obviously was going to start a bunch of rumors in the press, it was also the type of thing that was just like, whoa, this is, these are players that have those disputes. It's not drowned out. It's not protected from us. This is very visceral, very raw, yeah. and nothing can be hidden. And I think you heard the screams of players when they went down. You heard the ball being struck, which was very again, very grounding to hear the passes knocking around because there's microphones all over this field. You hear a shot and you hear that, you know, like when it hits the bar, you hear the clang in a way that you don't otherwise. And yeah, I mean, it depends on what you were looking for. I think during lockdown, if you were looking, if you were, if you were just searching for that feeling of community and the people and, and that type of thing, maybe you were looking for something else. But if you're looking for something to really find solace maybe even in the loneliness and see these super famous, super wealthy people that were lonely like you and were in a certain sense doing things that you've done. And it wasn't so much about the fanfare and it was more about the, the existence of something that we could actually all together appreciate and something simple that's also something that you can root for. And so I agree with you. I think that when they started putting like the FIFA soundtrack in the back, um, uh, you know, I'm not, I, I typically like, even if I'm listening, watching a game in a language that I don't understand, I'll turn on the commentary because the crescendo, the vocal crescendos are something that like I enjoy, yeah. but 
It's the intro I, to this show, actually. You enjoyed it that much. Yeah. Imagine, imagine if we had our show intro without the goal in it that we won't name so we don't get dinged for any particular copyright so no one can find it, though some people might know it. Um, but like, imagine if it was just the song and then it was our voices. How just rancid would that be i i wouldn't be excited to listen to this podcast at all <laughs> i wouldn't be recording that, i normally really am too that uh, noise that noise of the ball hitting the back of the net and the stadium erupting i mean some of these experiences kind of extend beyond our ability to describe them too you know some of these things when every time that i've ever been in a stadium for a for a massive game you know uh, over, just over a year ago when i was in the third row right dead center at, the Bernabeu in El Clasico, we lost that game, but even being in that stadium for what was the first time for me and hearing the Madrid anthem with which God, I have no affinity towards whatsoever was a very special experience was a very special experience. And, you know, my Barca brethren can, can lay it on me after this for saying this, but it was just this idea that people can come together and, you know, I remember when I was in the stadium for, you know, the other big game that I've seen, the Copa America final between Argentina and Chile in East Rutherford and Messi skied that penalty. When every single person, when I came back to school, was asking me how the game was and that, because they knew how much it mattered to me. The thing that I said to every single one of them was like, I have never in my life heard 83 and a half thousand people gasp at the same time. And I probably never will again. And that type of experience where life in and of itself, the, the collective energy of everybody, thousands of people, an inconceivable number of people, each of which have vivid experiences of their own and are going through their own lives and own troubles and difficulties and joys. All of that, when everybody collectively is held for a moment, yeah, it's uh, it's a there's nothing there's yeah. nothing like it. It's, it's like religious. I think that's that would be the way I describe it. It's um, it's just it's it's special, and I get and you know again this this I, everything I'm saying, all my apathy is coming from someone who's just not able to go to these games all the time and who hasn't had that experience as much. But I I know I I mean I I've been to a couple of games. I I know it's something special and. I'm, I'm not trying to say like, that's not important. I'm just saying, you know, it's, it's different watching on TV to watching in person. And maybe the things you value are different too. I, I think I agree with that. Yeah. Will, I think you have um, one final thing that you want to talk about that yeah, is quite relevant and we can probably it. use to, to bring us home. Oh, we, tonight. we sure can use it to bring us home. Um, so we, we touched on this. Word bound. It's beautiful. Home word bound. <laughs> Martin, how does, how does Martin, that song go? <laughs> Martin, we're we're sending you back. That was so good. How, uh, how, you, can, <laughs> you can go home and see your family. Home congratulations. Bound. Well, how does that? Do you know how that song goes? I don't remember. I wish I was. Homeward bound. Um, <laughs> I'm so it's moved. Like, it's like I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here sweating in my apartment, just tears dripping yeah. down my face. That's great. Okay, away goals, the most emotional of all topics. Let's. Uh, they they let's actually are. I know you're beautiful joking. finale. Away away goals are 
you know, they, they brought the most emotional moments in football. As I mentioned a few, a few weeks ago, a couple episodes ago, whenever we last did this, you know, away goals were the only situation in soccer where you could go from winning a game to losing a game or vice versa with a single goal. Right? It, was, it was something very special. I really liked them. And they're gone. And the, the reasoning from UEFA on getting rid of them is they said that when the rule was introduced, which is way, way back in the 60s, Right. There was a massive difference in UEFA competitions that home teams were just, you know, playing very attacking and away teams were always playing very, very defensively. And they showed the stats from the 60s and they showed the stats from today and they say, look, it's gotten better. You know, the away teams play more attacking now, so we don't need this anymore and we're going to get rid of it. Which uh, what it really reminded me of was, if you remember, like back back at the start of this whole coronavirus lockdown, Remember, everyone was wearing masks and staying home for a couple weeks, and then the numbers got better, and a bunch of people were like, "Okay, well, it works. We we can take off all our <laughs> stuff now and go out." And yeah, I'm like, great. "Wait a second, I, I'm pretty sure that the change you made to make the way goals more valuable might have played a role in making teams attack more away from home. Maybe just getting rid of it now is not a great idea." I don't UEFA know. Our anti-maskers confirmed. They, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at this point, Mark. In <laughs> given some of the other things they've done, that would be that would be pretty far down on the list, to be honest. Yeah, you're not wrong. Um, but you know, away goals—they were just great. And I think what this does is it makes it makes games like a bit less exciting to start because you know, like I mentioned, you don't have that fringe scenario anymore. We can get. One one goal turns a loss into a tie. Now there's that's the extra buffer of added time, and like I don't know about you, like ex- extra time sounds good to me in theory, but when I actually watch it, it, it's very rarely a pleasant experience to watch. And usually the players are tired. There's there's not a ton of goals going in. I mean you remember like even the Euro final. It's like if, if you can name like one actual thing that happened in the last thirty minutes of that game, I will be very impressed. Uh, we saw England try to park the bus by putting on Rashford and Sancho. Yeah, that I remember. The substitution. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, I mean, was was it ball kicks during that time? That's it. That's I, it. I genuinely have no idea. I it's can't just remember. a void in my mind. Yeah, you know, and and you know, I think we talked about this way back in the Super League, but more extra time is is not what these players and what these teams need right now. You know, schedules are getting more and more congested than ever, right? And trying trying to take away a, a very good, a very commonly used tiebreaker that just limited that playing time a little bit. You know, I, I think it's a bit of a push towards UEFA, as I've kind of hinted at before. I think they're maybe subtly trying to give some advantages to bigger teams with bigger budgets, bigger squads, and maybe adding more games, make it more likely for the games to go into extra time is all kind of playing into that. I mean, what's interesting about extra time too, as a quick comment, I agree with what you've said. I also think that there is a possibility that once you let fatigue factor in, there's a chance that those big clubs have better fitness coaches and things of that nature, better health, uh, you know, doctors and equipment. There's also a chance that in an environment that sometimes just transcends the game and becomes an entirely different game unto itself, extra time is often just a bunch of successive gambles or both teams just basically say, yeah, we'll roll the dice for penalties. But in the case that it's just like, sometimes it's just so volatile. And sometimes we've talked about my philosophy that I think that the best teams look to 
achieve predeterminism no. for a team that's like really good and has a lot to lose you don't want to face another team that also feels as though or that feels as though they have nothing to lose and yeah. in extra time there's often this sentiment of all right it's now or never you just throw things at the wall and see what sticks and i'm not saying that you know every team should do you know the hail mary because i do think it fails in our football but i do think that tactics often change and they often change to become more reckless less stringent more about who has preserved energy or who has the afterburners and it becomes this thing that suddenly like often you see tactics start to strip away and it becomes more of a battle of emotion and desire yeah. and there's that it's one there's that one center attacking midfielder that did a run across the entire field to get a last ditch tackle yeah. and then he's gassed and his hamstring is done for the and next you know, three weeks you know it's it can be fun to watch right at times but often it's not and it's just it's not like real football like you said it kind of falls apart which is kind of the same way i feel about penalties it's like they're fun to watch but then i'm like uh like is this is this like really how we should be deciding the games i don't know but anyway um i mean i, I was watching a game this week that kind of just made it clear to me like how bad this away goals change was i was watching psv against benfica and you know the first leg was in benfica and Benfica won two to one. All right. So uh, the the next game under the previous away goals rule, you know, what the situation for Benfica would be that one goal puts it completely out of reach. Right. If they get mm -hmm. if they get one, they're set. But for PSV, uh, one goal now wins them the game if they do it. And you know, but with that rule stripped away, like a goal like suddenly means a little bit less to both teams and they're both encouraged to play a bit more defensively play because kind of, now psv like a goal doesn't mean as much the goal doesn't get you everything it uh it just gets you through to extra time and for benfica a goal does not like end it it's still just like okay it's just a goal i don't know goals goals could mean more with the way goals they very rarely meant less and now i think goals just maybe mean a little bit less in general. And that's not good. It encourages defensive play. And I don't know. I guess that's a whole discussion to have, whether defensive play is good or not inherently. But I I like to see attacking play. I like to see goals. And I think most people do. I don't know. I don't think that many people most, go, go watch. I don't think that many people go and watch uh, slow and serious nine. Yeah. They see fast and furious ten. That was really funny, Martin. <laughs> that was horrid. Sorry, I'm, you guys. I'm you laughing, guys can't hear. You, you guys can't so hear much. Will's laugh. That's the problem. Will's cackling right now. You guys just don't hear it. Just take my word for it. Okay, I promise you. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think there there is something to be said for just the universal uh, inclusivity that like comes with scoring goals. Everybody knows that scoring goal is good even a goal saving tackle cannot be celebrated with the same like as exaltation as scoring one can. And so yeah. I think that when you take the most important gemstone of any sort of game or endeavor and you hit it with a blunt hammer and make it just a little less incredible, it's like, yeah. why are we doing this? What is the and, point of what we're doing? Do you, know how this, do you know how this game ended up by the way, with the lower incentive to score goals? Ugh. Zero zero. 
So very, very boring. You're telling me Nicholas Otamendi didn't uh, net a bicycle kick in the 95th minute. He does that all the time for the national if, team. If there were away goals, maybe he would have tried to, Martin. It's true. It's true. But I, I don't know. I, I keep coming back to what UEFA said, is that they think that playing home and away doesn't matter as much anymore. They think that it's not the away goals rule that has done it. This is just a natural change. And now the circumstances are different and we don't need the away goals rule anymore. And, you know, even if I think this is a bad decision right now, long-term, this might be the right call. I think, I think the home and away advantage, if we have to come away with a big point from the episode, I think regardless of what you want to say about it, whether it's positive or negative with the pressures it brings, I think it, it is getting lessened. And I think, you know, if you think back to the very first soccer match, whatever it must have been, you know, England against Scotland. It's like no one no one from England had ever even seen someone from Scotland before. Like can you can you imagine <laughs> can you imagine how much of a divide there was there and how serious that home field advantage must have felt and how it's like, oh my God, this is this is a whole different world we're playing against here. It's actual look, territory. Yeah. It it's it's been diluted. It's been diluted down over and over the years. And as it happens more and the sport globalizes and more and more spots, you know, both in the teams and the squads as well as in the stands are filled by people, you know, or, or tourists, you know, who are, who are parasites leeching off of your history, just like me and Martin are, who don't have this, <laughs> this real connection to the club, right? Who it doesn't mean as much to. And I think as, as that happens and more and more of those people get brought in, which will happen, right? It's already happening because those, those people have more money than the people who live in Liverpool sometimes, especially you know, for these big teams is, you know, they'll sell the tickets to the people who are able to pay more, right? And they will always reserve some spots for the locals. But, you know, that number has been going down steadily for years. And it, it probably will continue to do so. And I think, you know, at some point, probably UEFA will be able to say, yeah, crowds are just the same everywhere. It doesn't matter. We don't need away goals. Go watch your soccer, you idiots. <laughs> I think that is quite the way to end today's episode. I think that um, we, we've, we've developed a bit of a streak of talking about some pretty morose topics here. So yeah. next week with our episode, I will try my best to do something that's just like wholly uplifting and cheery and delightful. But, but at least, I, at least I, it's interesting. At least we're not just upset about football because like Christian Benteke missed a shot or something. At least we're, <laughs> we have these big problems. You Liverpool fans were so unappreciative of his contribution. No, I, I was not. Benteke, Benteke was great for us, man. He's a, he, <laughs> he gets a bad rap, but he, he tried his best. He scored like 12 goals in that season, even though he barely ever played and he was a horrible fit for the system. I mean that bicycle kick against United is yeah yeah worth, yeah, worth, yeah worth worth a thirty mil on its own as far as I'm concerned. So that's a that's a pricey pricey bicycle, especially when it's not my money. Ooh. <laughs> and especially when you actually don't care that much about the opposing fans. I just, yeah, no, I don't care. I I care about the opposing fans. I just I don't care about other Liverpool fans. <laughs> so no, that's think... that's not true. I I I think all <laughs> groups of fans are equal. I just, I'm more annoyed by Liverpool fans because I have to deal with them more. You know, I'll, I'll see Liverpool fans write things like, oh, United fans are so dumb. They don't watch games. They just rate our players based off like public perception. Also, Harry Maguire is trash. And I'm like, what are you, doing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you were so close. You were, uh, you were almost out the door. Uh, I mean, 
I think you've come away with a, with an interesting, again, like somewhat dystopian um, maybe takeaway from today's episode, which is that uh, someday we'll all just be clones of one another and yeah. every experience will be shared in a way that means that we have no individuality. But I do think that- 2029, baby, it's coming up. <laughs> I, we'll all be watching the Super League and in the Super League, there'll just only be one team and it's just Paris Saint-Germain. No, I mean, okay, <laughs> how, like- if, if you like were put into a coma and woke up a hundred years, how shocked would you be to find that there's just like one Super League stadium and all of their teams play their games there? It's like it's like on a blimp or something, maybe, or like in space in a hundred years. It's gonna happen. It'll be called the, the Super League Megadome. X- I mean, I, I think plus. I think that no matter what happens in a hundred years. Getafe will still be a dirty scumbag team. That's a that my everyone. That's my response. I have a I have a Sorry. deep dislike for the Getafe from a couple of years ago. I know some people have really strong affinities for the system that they implemented, but man, did I I have not disliked a team more than them in a long, long time. But an effort to wrap up what is effectively, I think, our most scatterbrained, mindless, not, not even just close. This putrid is nowhere, episode. Nowhere, nowhere near our worst, Martin. <laughs> I honestly think top three, maybe. This is our okay. Well, top three. That's. I mean, if you guys agree with that, um, you know, do us a favor, leave a like on Spotify, um, uh, leave us a review on Twitter, and. Uh, upvote the blog you know do the important things to keep us going uh for us this podcast is you know will in my livelihood uh it is the thing that keeps us going it is speaking mic to mic gazing into each other's eyes through this computer and saying really irrelevant things to whoever wishes to listen (laughs) That is what does it. That is what he, that's what I wake up for in the morning. You know, those weeks that we go without recording, I'm just a zombie. I just walk. Do do people still listen it. to this? <laughs> I kind of I thought people stopped when we took a break. No, people people def people stopped. There's uh. there's no one that's um actively waiting for us to put out content. But little do they know, um we're getting back on the horse. I think looking ahead, uh I already have you don't know this, but I already know what we're doing next week for the podcast. <gasps> Uh, I already have an idea in mind that takes, I think, what will initially appear as a really sad, dark idea, but ends up being very cheery and cool and fun. Yeah. So we're going to do a little ro- role reversal. Kind of like, uh, what's that movie? Bambi. <laughs> yeah, I got you with that one, Martin. <laughs> what is the, I haven't even seen it. All I know is that a deer dies. What is the fun part of that movie? Well, it gets more fun after that. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? The deer dies. All I know, all I know about Bambi is it's like the Pixar film or whatever, or DreamWorks film that gives children depression. That is all well, I know at first. But then there's a there's a rabbit and he he gets stuck in a log and all sorts of fun stuff happens. You should watch it. I'll I'll maybe, I'll, I'll mail my DVD to you. Maybe maybe if I watch it, I'll find a cartoonized version reincarnated of Joey, the butthole flaunting cat hidden right, in that Martin, log. Martin, that's, that's enough jokes about my cat for today. <laughs> okay. Here's what I'll say. Um, 
we've got some things coming down the line. Uh, I have been working on a piece for the last two and a half months that I am very excited. And also I have spent a lot of uh, blood, sweat and tears getting this thing out. So I'm, I'm wrapping things up. Uh, I'm delighted to be releasing that hopefully yeah. soon. There's some final nuts and bolts that need to be fastened into place. But aside from that, um, it is, we will definitely do a podcast episode on it. It is on a topic that everybody is talking about right now, kind of similarly to the Juego de Posición thing. Um, for those listening, for our loyal, loyal listeners that uh, trudge through Vin Diesel and um, Williams' feline uh, allegiances, this piece right now, and it's not complete yet, is 30,000 words. Um, it is a saga of a piece i am very much of the opinion that no one will read it and i hope no one does but um it is incredibly yeah. detailed and i promise i won't read it <laughs> it is it is the type of thing that the thing that i preface early on is that a lot of people i think generally on twitter are like oh i just wrote a piece it's five thousand words this is insane that is a lot of writing that takes a lot of time to read i'm not a particularly fast reader um this is the type of thing that like if anybody is interested is probably going to have to read in installments even if you know if they hadn't already read the juego de posición piece in installments it took me a couple of moments a, a couple instances of opening up the internet to read my own last piece and this one is very dense what i will promise though with all this self-degradation is that this is by far the most detailed thing i've ever created um this is like effectively a dissertation that I have done for fun and I've worked on every single night since I started. And it was, I started it right after the Juego de Posición piece. Um, I am trying to effectively do my best to not give fish, but to teach how to fish in this piece. And I don't want to say that from a point of like hoity toitiness, but I, you're off to a real bad start on that one. <laughs> the, the, the reason I say that though, is because I see a lot of people online that will find say some sort of topic. And, you know, I really like these, these, these pieces where you design drills and you just like show people ideas for things to do at training. Um, the Erling Holland piece that I did a long time ago was like that. And I think people really responded well to it. And I really enjoyed making it because it's just fun for me to th think about what I would, I would want to run in practice. This one, I think, is an entirely different take on that because I'm somebody who, as you know, can, is a little arrogant and somebody who doesn't like to be told what to do. And so I don't really want to do that to other people. And so my philosophy with this piece is instead of just showing people my thoughts, mm -hmm. I'm going to try to walk them through every little tidbit of my thinking. And so uh, the whole idea here is that I've got a conglomerate of drills that I'm going to be proposing as potential concepts to work on this Again, this topic, I don't know if I've even said it or I've made, I made a couple of different references to it on my Twitter, posting a couple of GIFs here and there and then deleting them the next day. But the... Just, just the look idea, around. You'll figure out what it is. There you go. Um, the, the whole idea is that it's a very difficult thing to teach. I think people have done... probably People are very interested in teaching it. Not everybody has had the best approach to doing so. I think it's been a little lackluster. And so my hope as a you know arrogant 22-year-old is that I can maybe make a dent in that. And so even, even with this like proposition of a bunch of different exercises, what I am trying to do to try to distinguish this piece is literally explain exactly how I'm designing every parameter that I can possibly think of. And so whether it be the numbers on each team, the specific confirmation of cones, the reason for different zones and different scoring methodologies, the incentivization, 
the stipulations. I'm trying to put in multiple variations for each and every exercise. I'm really, really, really trying to make this as complete as I can um, as an exercise for myself, but also for whomever is interested. And I think, you know, I, I listened to, I think, uh, Renee Marich uh, Analytics FC podcast episode. I think that's what it was from years ago in which he talked about um, how he, when he started Spiel Verlagerung, he really, really wanted to, or had an appreciation for those that wrote until they felt as though their thoughts could just kind of be complete within themselves. And like he would write, he didn't mind these 10,000 word pieces because he wanted the piece to stand for itself. And I, I wholeheartedly believe in that when it comes to this touchline theory thing. And I think that, you know, a lot of people, and you, I mean, you've told me to do this, just about everybody has told me to do this with some of these really, really long sagas. It's like, I could release this in multiple parts. I could release the current piece I'm going to send out as eight separate blog posts. There are that mm -hmm. many things in there that I could split up, but I want this to be a self-encapsulated thing that people can refer to, that people can look back at and use it as a reference and use it as a brainstorming exercise, something that people can have their thinking sparked by just a different take on things that people are doing. So that's a lot of words and a lot of talking and much less fun than talking about Joey, but um, that is coming hopefully in the, in the upcoming weeks. Um, I'm going to be, coming increasingly uh, bitter and rude as I spend more time in Massachusetts because I'm now living in Boston. So get used to it, William. Uh, it's only going to get worse from here. Oh boy. Um, that's that's not think. good. What have you, what have you got on the table? Uh, I got nothing. Gotta come back next week and I'll tell you guys about my favorite butthole I've seen at Martin's house. <laughs> <laughs> But, oh dear lord but until then this has been touchline theory um <laughs> till next time <laughs> till next time folks